Hey everybody, it is Wednesday, August 24th. I'm Mosh Wanunu and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. There's a lot we're tracking on this Wednesday morning. First, we're going to expect a major news out of the White House today on student loans. President Biden has taken uh, just over 18 months here to make his decisions, and we understand that there'll be a major move today in regards to student loan forgiveness. Today marks officially six months since the Russians invaded Ukraine. We'll give you a status check on the war as the Ukrainians celebrate Independence Day today. We got some major headlines from a Twitter whistleblower. We'll tell you what that person is saying about the social network and its impact on the Elon Musk litigation. There's a new debate among employers on how to treat stay-at-home workers as we've now entered the sort of permanent era of working from home. And we have a couple interesting science headlines, including NASA releasing audio from deep space. We'll play some of that for you, and we'll tell you about some dinosaur tracks that were found in Texas. Okay, let's start with the big story of the day, the one we've been following for a year and a half now, Biden's big decision on student loans. Later today, we expect the president is set to announce his long-delayed move to forgive up to $10,000 in federal student loans for many Americans. This is coming to us from multiple reports, the Washington Post, NBC, AP, that start to leak out of the White House on Tuesday afternoon. Biden has been facing pressure from both sides, including liberals on his left, who are saying that it's about time he provides broader relief to hard-hit borrowers, and then the people to his right, the moderates and Republicans, who are questioning fairness and any widespread forgiveness and its potential impact on inflation. We're still awaiting some more details on this, but according to multiple outlets, there will be the announcement today, and there will be an income cap. So essentially, my understanding as of this Wednesday morning is that there will be a $10,000 forgiveness only to those earning less than $125,000 a year. This has been a concern among some that just doing a widespread loan forgiveness will end up benefiting a lot of folks who make a significant amount of money. And so it appears here the president is appeasing those who wanted to be targeted. Just want to give you a sense of overall numbers here when it comes to student loans. The collective federal student debt right now in the U.S. tops one6 trillion dollars. More than 43 million Americans have federal student debt. About one third of those debt holders have $10,000 or less and just over half owe less than $20,000. We've been covering this on the Instagram feed for uh, months, for more than a year now. And I've heard from some of you who have six figures in loans, including some dentists. I was surprised to learn how expensive dental school was that have several hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans. So for many Americans, this could be significant. For some Americans, this will just be a drop in the bucket when it comes to what they owe in terms of their loans. Biden originally promised something along these lines, the $10,000 number back during the 2020 campaign, but then he narrowed his campaign promise in recent months by embracing that income limit I just discussed as the idea of soaring inflation uh, took a political toll on him. A number of Democrats, including some in congressional leadership in the Senate and the House, have tough re-election bids in November. They're uh, facing right now a uphill climb to remain the majority in the House and Senate, and they've been pushing the White House to go as broad as it can when it comes to debt relief. They see this as part of a galvanizing issue for younger voters, including uh, black voters, who are particularly impacted by student loans. Now, if this 10,000 number holds true, progressives are going to be disappointed. Many wanted up to $50,000 in forgiveness. At the same time, Biden's trying to appease both sides here, which he's going to get criticism from both, because again, you have the Republicans and Democrats to his right that don't feel that any more money should be going out at a time where we're curbing sky-high inflation. 
And I should add one more thing, that this announcement will likely be coupled with another extension of the pause on federal student loan repayments. Remember that going back to March 2020, the White House, initially the Trump White House, and now the Biden White House, have been extending, deferring those federal student loan payments going back now two and a half years. And it appears that the Biden administration, again, as part of this announcement, will also push back student loan payments, at least until early 2023. Okay, I want to go abroad here for the big international headline we are watching this week. Today officially marks six months since Russia first invaded Ukraine. Ukraine is also incidentally today celebrating Independence Day more than 30 years since they first received their independence from the Soviet Union. But unfortunately, given the state of the war and given the state of threats, the occasion will not be marked by much celebration in Kyiv or across Ukraine today. Rather, the uh, leadership there is calling for vigilance. Ukrainians are on high alert for attacks. They're particularly worried about any attacks on civilian targets. That includes a warning from the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv that the Russians might have something in store on this Independence Day. This all comes as we're watching another story in kind of South Central Ukraine. The UN Security Council on Tuesday discussed the escalating situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in an emergency meeting. Russia took control of this plant back in the spring. Ukraine is now making progress in trying to take control back of the nuclear power plant. It is the largest nuclear power plant in all of Europe. Russia and Ukraine are accusing one another of escalating artillery attacks near the plant. An employee at the plant actually and his driver were killed in a mortar explosion outside the facility this week that really underscores the precarious situation they're in. Back in the capital, the president Zelensky has imploring Ukrainians to observe curfews on this Independence Day and pay attention to air sirens and official announcements. The Ukrainian leadership believes that Russia's intelligence and national security service, the FSB, is expected to launch what they say are terrorist attacks on multiple Ukrainian targets today. There's a number of good status checks on where we are in terms of the war right now. The Wall Street Journal has one out today. They're quoting Western military analysts who believe that the balance of the military and economic situation right now is tilting towards the Ukrainians. Remember, Russia now occupies somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of Ukraine, but there has not been much movement in months. Both sides are believed to have lost tens of thousands of soldiers killed or wounded since February. Russia right now is struggling even more than Ukraine to replace losses of its troops, losses of weaponry. They're relying on mercenaries, old tanks to fill the gaps. And Russia's economy is really in a far deeper recession than anything we're experiencing in the West. At the same time, though, Ukraine is still using guerrilla tactics. We're not expecting much from this counteroffensive in terms of taking back a lot of land. Russia still has far more artillery, far more shells. Advancing on the open ground is pretty difficult. And one of the complaints that Ukraine has is that Western military aid, especially from Europe, remains slow, though the U.S. today will announce what's expected to be another $3 billion in new military and security assistance. That is on top of the $11 billion the U.S. has already given the Ukrainians over the course of the past six months. The big question here is how long will this last? That'll actually be the subject of a special extra edition of the podcast we'll be putting out later today. That is my conversation with former U.S. CIA director, Michael Morell. We'll be talking all things Russia, all things Ukraine, why the CIA uh, got the prediction on this war so wrong. He was thinking Russia would win this in just a couple of days. And we'll talk about Putin's mindset and what it means that he's a former KGB agent as he approaches this war and how long it might last. All right, there's a business headline I'm watching today. That is the stunning headline regarding Twitter. Tuesday, we learned that a whistleblower from Twitter is alleging, quote, extreme egregious deficiencies by the company related to privacy, security, and content moderation. This is according to complaints that were filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the FTC, and the Department of Justice. 
The complaint comes from the former head of security. His name is Peter Zatko. He's a widely admired hacker who was known as Mudge. He was brought in a couple of years ago to try to fix security issues within the company. He depicts Twitter as a chaotic and rudderless company. He depicts the constant infighting, a company unable to properly protect the 238 million daily users who use Twitter, as well as the government agencies, the heads of state, we know presidents use Twitter, and other influential public figures who use the platform. In his complaint, and this is a long complaint, the Washington Post got a hold of it first, Zadko alleges Twitter executives deceived federal regulators, lied to them, and the company's own board of directors about those egregious deficiencies in its defense against hackers. In his complaint, Zadko basically says he warned colleagues that half the company's servers were running out-of-date, vulnerable software. Executives withheld dire facts about the number of breaches, the lack of protection to the board of directors, to the U.S. government. If you've been following Twitter for years, you might be familiar with all the hacks that took place, including against high-profile uh, users, including Elon Musk, former President Obama, Trump. Uh, there were a number of high-profile hacks. And so Zotko was hired by former CEO Jack Dorsey back in late 2020 after one of those hacks, but then fired by the new bosses earlier this year. In an interview with the Washington Post, Zotko describes his decision to go public as a difficult one, but one that he felt obligated to do. He tells the Post, quote, I felt ethically bound. This is not a light stuff to take. A person, though familiar with Zotko's tenure at the company, this is Twitter's side now, said they investigated Zotko's security claims during his time there and concluded they were sensationalistic and without merit. Either way, this is a pretty explosive complaint and it has implications for Twitter's ongoing litigation with Elon Musk. Remember, Elon Musk bought them. He's trying to get out of the $44 billion deal. They're going through litigation. One of the accusations Musk has is that Twitter has not been forthright, has not been honest through the process. And so obviously here, Musk uh, is highly interested in how this complaint goes. And he took to where else Twitter uh, to comment on it. He shared a meme of Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio with the words, give a little whistle. If you remember the lyrics to the Give a Little Whistle song, I believe it goes, when you get in trouble and don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle. So uh, Musk seems to be taking a little joy, a little schadenfreude on what's going on here and has hopes that this could help his legal case. Okay, let's stay with a bit of legal news. We got some out of Michigan on Tuesday. A jury convicted two men, Adam Fox and Barry Croft Jr., of conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer back in 2020. This is a plot you might remember. Uh, they announced it in the weeks leading up to the election. It was broken up by the FBI. This conviction is a big victory for the U.S. Justice Department. A different jury just four months ago could not reach unanimous decisions on Fox and Croft. They acquitted two other men, and that is what has led to this second trial where a jury has now convicted Fox and Croft. When sentencing happens, they actually, both of them, face up to life in prison for two counts of conspiracy related to the kidnapping scheme, attempts to use a weapon of mass destruction in uh, the pursuit of Whitmer and in the getaway. Uh, they apparently, the, the claim was, and they were convicted of this, that uh, they wanted to blow up a bridge to disrupt police if the abduction could be pulled off at Whitmer's vacation home. Going back here to 2020, the investigation began when an Army veteran first joined the uh, Michigan paramilitary group that these two were involved with and became alarmed when he started to hear talk about killing police. And so this veteran agreed to become an FBI informant, spent the summer of 2020 getting close to these men, secretly recording conversations, participating in drills. The FBI would eventually also be able to successfully insert other informants into the group. This all escalates. Eventually, Foxcroft, the whole group, they travel to northern Michigan to see Whitmer's vacation home at night, see which bridge could be destroyed. Their big issue with Gresham Whitmer, they hated lockdowns. They felt that like they needed to set an example here uh, for freedom, 
and the First Amendment and the Declaration of Independence uh, with the feeling that uh, Whitmer was an example of governors that had abused their power during COVID. Eventually, uh, as they got close, as the plotters got close to enacting their plan, they were all arrested in October of 2020, just hours from her home. Uh, Whitmer herself was not physically harmed. The FBI is uh, celebrating this conviction here. David Porter, who leads the FBI in Western Michigan, hailed the verdict saying, quote, here in America, if you disagree with your government, you have options. What you cannot do is plan and commit acts of violence. I will keep you up to date on this as we get closer to sentencing. All right, a story I teased at the top. This is in regards to remote work. The LA Times is reporting this week that as remote work looks likely to survive in some form for the foreseeable future, a battle is brewing over who should pocket the savings. Some employers argue that working from home is a benefit that should be offset by lower salaries. So more and more employers now are looking at paying less to those who work from home, especially those who are working remotely from cities where the cost of living is cheaper. A new estimate from the Working From Home Research Project, this is done by economists over at Stanford University and the University of Chicago, estimates that about 30% of all paid workdays in the country are still being done from home. The project found that 4 in 10 employers plan to use remote work as a way to ease overall wage growth pressures. Wages have been rising over the course of the past two years as uh, businesses attempt to compete with one another in what has been a difficult job market. Obviously, it has not been rising as much as inflation, but wages have been rising and employers are trying to figure out ways to be able to find some savings here. So according to the LA Times, they're not necessarily looking to cut salaries of existing employees, but they are looking at filling new openings with remote workers in cheaper markets. This is already happening in the UK, not quite in the US yet because the labor market has been so tight and it still is a worker market, not an employer market. Uh, there's still many more openings than available jobs, but this is something to watch as we get closer to a potential recession here. And many of you have been writing into me about this, that this is not entirely new, but we are going to be seeing this on a scale we haven't seen before. There are a lot of businesses that uh, have for years paid people less based on where they live, based on cost of living. But the issue here is you're going to have a lot of in potential instances here where two employees are doing the same job, one in the office, one somewhere in rural America or some other city potentially, but it's going to be paid differently for the same job. And so this will become a big issue over time. One other thing we should note here is that the benefit isn't only for the worker, uh, as some of you and the LA Times story also points out, a lot of the benefits go to the employer, right? They have less office space, uh, rent, uh, office expenses, uh, various things they need to do there. There's also evidence that there's major productivity gains that teleworkers actually spend more time on the job than workers in the office. And so some of you are saying like, well, why should we be paid less if we're going to be more productive here? So this is looks to be an ongoing debate in the coming months and probably years. Okay, everyone, I want you now to take a moment and listen to the following audio clip. That, my friends, is the sound of deep space, the sound of a black hole. NASA tweeted it out this week. It's what they're calling a remix sonification of the black hole at the center of a galaxy cluster known as Perseus. It lies, get this, 240 million light years away. That is really, really far. The sound waves were actually identified nearly two decades ago, back in 2003, but were extracted and finally made audible for the first time this year. Some people are calling this sound creepy. Some are calling this beautiful. The 34-second clip has set social media ablaze this week. It has also led to some confusion that NASA is trying to clarify here that anything could escape a black hole, including sound. And so NASA has taken a moment to explain this out on social media this week, saying that the idea that there is no sound in space is actually a popular misconception. While most of space is a vacuum with no medium for sound waves to travel through, 
a galaxy cluster has, in NASA's words, copious amounts of gas that envelop the hundreds or even thousands of galaxies within it, providing a medium for the sound waves to travel. So essentially, there are gases out there that allow for sound to travel. This audio clip I just played you, the most recent tweet of it has already been listened to 14 million times in just the past few days. It was actually originally released back in May, but didn't pick up that much traction, went viral this week in a new tweet. The sound waves, as I said, were discovered back in 2003, but officially humans would not be able to hear that initial recording because the frequency was way too low for our ears. NASA saying it's the equivalent of a B flat, but it's 57 octaves below the middle C note on a piano. So astronomers have taken the time to remix the sound, increase its frequency by 57 and 58 octaves so human ears could hear it. NASA put it another way. These sounds are being heard 144 quadrillion and 288 quadrillion times higher than their original frequency. Uh, everything NASA always says completely blows my mind when they're talking about these huge numbers. And if you're ever near a black hole, keep in mind that you're probably not going to be able to hear sounds like this. Human ears are not sensitive enough to pick up those sound waves, but essentially here NASA has turned up the volume for the rest of us. And let's end here with another sort of mind-blowing science story. A severe drought in Texas has exposed a riverbed that has exposed 113 million-year-old dinosaur tracks. This type of dinosaur is called an Acrocanthosaurus. These tracks apparently sat underwater in sediment for many, many years. I'm going to link to the pictures in the show notes. The tracks are located at Dinosaur Valley State Park in Texas and are some of the best preserved in the world, according to the park superintendent. Last week, more than 87% of Texas was experiencing one of the three most serious drought categories, severe, extreme, or exceptional, which has, we've seen this across the West this summer, these droughts have exposed things like, you know, uh, sunken ships, uh, old human remains, and in this case, 113 million-year-old dinosaur tracks. These tracks are called the Lone Ranger Trackway. They belong, as I said, to Acrocanthosaurus. Growing up, I was always like T-Rex, Brontosaurus, but I keep learning about all these new species of dinosaurs. This is the Acrocanthosaurus. The trail goes for about 100 feet here. The dinosaur had three toes on each foot and is believed to have stood 15 feet tall and weighed seven tons. This is really one way to leave your mark. I feel like when I write my initials in a sidewalk with a concrete drawing that I'm doing something significant. This dinosaur walked these steps 113 million years ago, and you can check them out in Central Texas. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. We'd love your feedback on how we're doing, on what we're covering. Email me over at podcast at mo.news. Also, please subscribe to the show, follow the show on whatever app you're listening to us, and leave us a review. Every review makes a difference. You can also catch the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com and follow me over on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. And again, a heads up, we have a second podcast today coming out later this afternoon. It's my conversation with former CIA director, Michael Morell. It is part three of three. Two weeks ago, we told you about all things China. Last week was all things Al-Qaeda and terrorism. Today, all things Ukraine and Russia. I'll see everyone later today and back again here tomorrow.